0: You have a Bible open to the book of Titus, chapter 3, Titus chapter 3, this is our last week in the book of Titus. Last week I gave you a preview of what we're going to talk about over the summer months and into the fall, so I'll just remind you of what's coming up in the weeks ahead. In June and July we're going to work through a series called Knowing Jesus and we're just going to remind ourselves of some basic truths about who the Lord Jesus Christ is. We're going to talk about Jesus, the ruler, the savior, a friend, the faithful one, the mediator, the one who is coming, gentle, a servant, and the Messiah. And so we're going to talk about Jesus over the summer months. In the fall, uh, August through December, we're going to talk about Psalm 119. We have, in the past, worked through different psalms and uh, we've made a couple of passes through the book of psalms this pass we're just going to look at one psalm psalm 119 176 verses 22 sections of 8 verses each we're going to take one stanza of that psalm a week and we're just going to work through what psalm 119 tells us about the word of god and the central role that it ought to play in our lives as the people of God. So this morning, we're going to wrap up the book of Titus. If you were with us when we went through the book of Ecclesiastes, you might remember that Ecclesiastes uh, 6.8 says, the end of a thing is better than the beginning of a thing. So by default, that means this is going to be the best Titus sermon in the whole series. The end of a thing is better than the beginning of a thing. Titus 1.5 has governed the way we've approached the book all the way through this series, in that verse, Paul says to Titus, I left you on Crete that you might put what remained into order. And that verse describes a little bit of the relationship between Paul and Titus, but it also describes the purpose for which Paul was writing to Titus. Paul had left Titus on the island of Crete, to put these brand-new, baby, newly-planted churches into order. And he's writing this letter to Titus to explain to him how he might put those brand-new, baby, newly-planted churches into order. It's a simple reminder that when it comes to church, God has not left it to us to be inventive or creative or innovative. I had a conversation with somebody, not one of our church members, just this last week. And the whole conversation from his perspective revolved around the idea that we have to constantly be reinventing, changing the very foundational nature of what the church is if we want to reach the next generation. To which I said, well, we just want to be a church put into biblical order. We're not trying to reinvent anything, we're not trying to innovate anything, we're just trying to listen to the Word of God and be a church put into biblical order. So the sections of this book, of this short letter, explain to us a broad view of what it looks like when a church is put into order. So there's a little introduction at the beginning, and then Paul begins to talk to Titus about right leadership. You need right leadership if a church is going to be put into order. Then he talks about right doctrine, and in right doctrine, he's talking about the gospel. It's the very heart of this book. Right leadership has the responsibility to teach right doctrine in the church. And then at the end of the book, the section that we've been working through, he talks about right living. And that's connected to the heart of the book, right doctrine, because right doctrine, taught properly and received properly, will result in right living By the people of God. And so we've spent several weeks in this back end of Titus talking about what does it mean that our lives would be marked by what we've termed right living. And so this is what we've said so far. Right living involves how we submit to authority, right living involves how we relate to other people. Right living, you never can get far from the gospel, it involves how we remember. gospel. If you forget the gospel, right living becomes impossible. Then last week we added on these ideas, right living involves how the church stands for the truth and good works. And we do that together as a church. We stand together. The church is essential. It is central to right living and it involves how the church stands against false teaching and sin. Meaning, You've got to submit to authority rightly. You've got to treat other people rightly. You've got to remember the gospel. And then together, we have to stand for something positively, the truth and good works. And together, we have to stand against certain things negatively, false teaching and sin. So that brings us to the big idea of this final section in Titus. Our devotion to good works changes the way... That we as believers relate to each other within the church. We're thinking about our relationships within the church. That's a fitting way to end a book that starts off saying this is how you put a church into order. Ending with a conversation about how we might interact with each other and treat each other and relate to each other within the body of Christ, within the church. So, if you have your scriptures open, you can look at Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. We'll read through the end. The Bible says this, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Father, as your people, we're grateful for your word. And we just sang that your word will stand, it's true, it's powerful, it's living, it's active, it's a light for our feet and it's a lamp for our path. It's a rock that we can take our stand on. Father, we've prayed for our graduates that they would seek you and that they would be faithful to your word. And we continue to pray this morning for our church that we would be a church put into order. Not according to the wisdom of the world, not according to the latest innovations or the most creative ideas, but simply listening to what the Bible says. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're here at the end of May, which means we've made it to the end of another school year. If you think the kids are happy, you should talk to a teacher. Teachers are really, really happy that it's the end of the school year. There were some amens and some head nods and some smiles out there from our teachers. I know that as a church, we usually come around in the fall at the beginning of a school year and we recognize our teachers and we thank our teachers and that's a good time to do that. We pray for you at the beginning of the year, but we probably as a church uh, and as just people who live in a community with each other, we probably ought to come to the end of a school year and say, thank you. You made it. Uh, God was faithful. He kept you through this year, and that's true for you whether you're uh, teaching our public schools or you teach in a private school or you teach in a charter school or you teach in a home school or wherever you teach. We're grateful for our teachers. Uh, we don't care what you teach, if it's math or if it's English or if it's history or if it's welding or music or PE or whatever, uh, teaching is a noble task. Teaching is essential to people growing up and being well-rounded individuals. Learning is important. It's important to a community. It's important to young people. It's important throughout our lives that we be learning and growing in our knowledge and in our understanding of the world and the way that things work. I would also submit to you that learning not only makes you a well-rounded person and is important for life, but learning is wrapped up in what it means to be a Christian. Christians are learners. They ought to be learners, lifelong learners. And I want to just step back and I want to build with some things in the book of Titus. Now that we're at the end of the book, we can look back and I want to show you a few things and then I want to come back to our passage and and come full circle to this idea of learning. In the book of Titus, there are six references. It's a short book, but there's six references to good works. Good works. Four of those references we might lump together because Paul uses the phrase kalon ergon, good works, and two of them we might lump together because he uses a different Greek phrase, ergon agathos, but both of them translate exactly the same into English, good works. Just think about how short this book is, how quickly we've moved through it verse by verse. Six times in writing to Titus about how he might put a church into order, Paul brings up the idea of good works. And if your Bible's open, you can look at these quickly with me. Chapter 1, verse 16, he says that false teachers are unfit for any good work. If your doctrine is off, Good works become an impossibility. False teachers completely unfit for any good work. Titus chapter two verse seven. Titus is to be a model of good works, an example. People need more than just teaching; they need a living, breathing example of what it looks like to live a life marked by good works. Chapter two verse fourteen. God has saved a people who are zealous for good works. It's not that God saves people by their good works or because of their good works, but He saves them by His grace so that they can walk in good works. Chapter 3, verse 1. Christians should be ready for every good work. Chapter 3, verse 8. Those who have believed in God should be careful, intentional, mindful to devote themselves to every good work. Our passage, chapter 3, verse 14, Christians should learn. They should learn to devote themselves to good works. And I just want to talk about that word, learn, in Titus chapter 3, verse 14. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. The Greek word for learn here is manthano. And I'm just giving you a couple of related words so you get the idea of what this word group means. Mathe uh, Mathetuo means to make a disciple. Mathetes is a disciple or a learner. And this is the last of 11 commands in the book of Titus. It's a command that we as Christians, people who are part of the church, should learn Something should constantly be learning something. You never graduate from learning what Paul's talking about here. Learn to devote themselves to good works. God calls His people to learn constantly. We're constantly to learn about who God is. We're constantly to be learning about who we are as people created in God's image and as sinners who have rebelled against God. We're constantly to be learning about the idea of salvation and how God has acted by His grace and His mercy to bring us into His family. We're constantly to be learning about what it means to be a disciple. It's why, at our church, we give so much attention and time in our programming and our worship services on Sundays and on Wednesdays to teaching because learning is central to what it means to be a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some churches give central place to what we would call worship or singing. And we do that on Sundays and Wednesdays. We sing together. We worship together. But we understand as Christian people that our singing to God is only a response to what God has said to us in His Word. We never make the first move with God. We are always responding to God. God has spoken to us in the Scriptures and we respond to Him Some churches, even in our town, especially in the Bible Belt, give primary attention when the church is gathered to what we would call encouragement. We want to say say things and sing things that will sort of pump you up and rejuvenate you and get you ready for the next week and uh, get you uh, on an emotional high. And we want you to have some sort of experience while you're here. But if you divorce encouragement from teaching, it's just cheerleading. No offense to cheerleaders, but it's just cheerleading. Come on, you can do it, you can do it, you're the best, you can do it. Well, do what? In whose power? Why? Teaching is central to what the people of God do when they gather together. Learning is essential to what it means to be a Christian. Titus 3.14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. So we're thinking about right living. We're thinking about good works. We have to learn these things. And in this final section, all of the stuff that Paul says, which on a first reading might sound to you like just he's wrapping up a personal letter and it's not that important for us. He is wrapping up a personal letter. And it is important for us to learn how we might devote ourselves to good works. So the question we want to ask is this, how do believers treat each other? How do we relate to each other in a church that is put into order? The first thing that we need to learn is this, we need to value the contribution of each individual. If we're going to relate to each other rightly in the church and learn to devote ourselves to good works, we have to learn to value the contribution of each individual individual. So I want to talk to you about some of the names that are mentioned in this passage. And I'm going to put some of these names up on the screen. And I'm going to show you a map and then I'll put these names back up. So the first name that we read about is Artemis. There's a man named Artemis who Paul has sent and he's headed to Crete. What do we know about Artemis? Absolutely nothing. Other than that Paul sent him to Crete and he was traveling with a guy named Tychicus. We actually know quite a bit about this guy named Tychicus. He was a traveling companion of Paul. We know that from Acts chapter 20. We read in Ephesians and Colossians that he is a faithful brother. He is a humble servant. And he's probably the man that carried the letter that Paul wrote to Ephesus and the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. Paul trusted Tychicus that much that he would carry these letters and deliver them to these churches. We also learn from 2 Timothy 4, verse 12, that Tychicus, late in Paul's life, at the very end of Paul's life, he served as Paul's personal representative in carrying messages and in carrying out different sorts of business for Paul. So Artemis and Tychicus are coming, and Paul says to Titus, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. So let's have a quick geography lesson. We'll put up Uh, a section of the mediterranean sea way down on the bottom right you can see jerusalem and the sea of galilee and the dead sea crete is right there in the middle that's where titus is at the island of crete it's a long skinny island in the middle of the mediterranean if you travel by sea up into the north a little bit to the west you come to a city called nicopolis that's where paul was Many people would winter there because of the uh, change in the seasons and the change in the winds, and you couldn't sail easily. And so Paul's there with a lot of other people. He says, I'm going to stay here for the winter. Titus, I want you to come here as soon as Artemis and Tychicus come to you. Now, presumably, Titus made that journey at some point. The next time we read anything about Titus, he's not in Nicopolis, but he's way up north in a region that that was called Dalmatia. So presumably, he left Crete, he went up to Nicopolis, he met with Paul, he ended up serving the churches in Dalmatia. Now I want to make one little side point, just a a little rabbit trail as you think about these different roles that these men played. In this book, we've been talking about Titus being on Crete. He got left on Crete, and he had a job to do the job that he had to do on the island of Crete was to put what remained into order, put the churches into order. And in Paul's mind, when that job is done, he has something else for Titus to do. When these two men, Artemis and Tychicus, come, you are to leave Crete, leave that job behind, meet me at Nicopolis, and eventually he ended up in Dalmatia. And I just want to remind you that every ministry assignment is temporary every ministry assignment is temporary every pastor is an interim pastor all of them I had a friend on my Facebook feed this morning I was scrolling through he acknowledged a buddy who was celebrating his 25th anniversary as the pastor of a church in the Houston area 25 years is a long time to pastor a church But he's not going to pastor that church forever unless the Lord Jesus returns. At some point, he leaves. There was a man who pastored this church for decades, Bill Cook. He's not the pastor now. If you've been around Emmanuel any length of time, you've probably had Sunday school teachers in the past who are not your Sunday school teachers now. Every Sunday school teacher, every ministry assignment is a temporary assignment. None of us... In the church are not replaceable. We're all replaceable. And every assignment that the Lord gives to us is a temporary assignment. It may be short, it may be long. Titus had a job to play in Crete. It was an important job, put the churches into order. If Titus did his job right, those churches would benefit for decades, for generations to come. The duration of somebody's ministry assignment doesn't make it more important or less important, what matters is faithfulness while you have that particular assignment. So there's Artemis and there's Tychicus and they're coming and Titus is to leave. But there's two other men mentioned in the passage. Zenos, verse 13, we're told that Zenus is a lawyer. He's the only Christian lawyer mentioned in the New Testament. Some people say that Zenus was trained in rabbinic law... Like he might be a rabbi and he was trained in the Torah. But because his name is Greek, most people think he was what we would call a secular lawyer. He was trained in Roman law. That was his profession. That was his background. And then there's a man named Apollos. We know quite a bit about Apollos. The book of Acts tells us he was educated. He was eloquent. He was from Alexandria, which was one of the world's leading university towns in the first century. Uh, we read in 1 Corinthians that he was an amazing preacher. In fact, some people thought he was the absolute best preacher that they had ever heard. And Paul says, these two guys, Zenus and Apollos, are going to come. They're on a mission, and you need to speed them on their way. You know what that means, right? Feed them, put them up, and support them financially in the mission that they're going on. You need to be involved in their mission, not by going, but by sending and by supporting them. So a church put into order values the contribution of every individual. Let's just think about the names in this passage. Churches put into order. They need visionary leaders like Paul. They also need men like Titus who can get things done. The church needs people, not just who have great ideas, but who can also execute those ideas and see them through. And you know what? The church needs some people who serve anono- anonymously without a lot of fanfare. People like Zenus, whom we know nothing about. People like Artemis, who we know nothing about. We need people like that, serving in the church. We need people like Apollos, who are educated and trained, and they think well and they speak well. We need people like Tychicus, who are trustworthy, and you can give them Super important tasks, and you can know this is a faithful brother, and he will see this through. At Emmanuel, we need preachers, and we need Sunday school teachers, and we need deacons who serve, and we need people to greet, and we need men to usher, and we need folks who will serve faithfully in the nursery. We need people who will pray. We need people who will serve at VBS. We need people who will go to Kenya. We need people who will work with our students and our youth. We need you. When we talked about the church earlier in the year, one of the metaphors we talked about is the church is the body of Christ. Every part of the body is essential. You don't think you need a pinky toe? Kick your bed frame in the middle of the night and see how much you need a pinky toe functioning properly. You need it. Every part is essential. And if we're going to relate to each other rightly... As a church committed to good works, we have to value the contribution of every individual. Secondly, how do believers treat each other in a church that is put into order? They recognize the distinction between the church and the world. And there is a distinction. In verse 14, Paul says to Titus, Let our people. Let our people. It's easy to pass over that in English. Greek scholars tell us that the the wording he used here is very unusual. He almost never uses this wording anywhere else in his letters. And he's probably using it here to make a point and to make an emphasis that there is a group of people that could be described as our people. You may remember back in chapter 3 verse 8, he talked about the church being committed to the truth and good works. And he says, this is excellent and profitable for who? For people, all people, any person, it's good for the people of God to be committed to the truth and good works. It benefits everyone. But here, in verse 14, he's not talking about people universally, people in general. He's talking about our people. So previously, not only did we talk about the church as the body of Christ, but we talked about what the term church means. And we looked at Matthew chapter 16. This is earlier this year in our series through the church. In Matthew 16, Jesus said, I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The word church there is ecclesia. And we translate it as congregation or assembly. And earlier in the year, we made the obvious point that congregations congregate. That's what a congregation does. It congregates together. And assemblies assemble together. And we talked about the notion that sometimes gets floated around that you shouldn't go to church. You should be the church. And I suggested to you that just doesn't make a lot of sense when you understand what the church is. We said you should be a Christ follower. You should be a Christian. But the church by its very nature... Congregates together and assembles together for worship and the reading of the scriptures and preaching and teaching and learning and prayer. It's essential. It's central to what the church is. Literally, if you wanted to translate this word ecclesia, you would translate it as the called out ones. People who have been called out. Ek, out, ecclesia, kaleo, to call. The church has been called out. Called out of what? Called out of the world. To be a distinct people. Just like Israel was called out of Egypt to be a unique, holy nation. So likewise, the church has been called out of the world to be a distinct people. To be different. To be holy. How does that happen? Titus chapter 3, verse 4 the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. And He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's a distinction between the church and the world, and we have to recognize that. We're called out to be different, to be holy, to be devoted to good works. How do believers treat each other in a church that's put into order? Number three, they care for those in need. They care for those in need. Verse 14, let our people, our people, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. I'm going to forego the temptation to preach a whole separate sermon on that verse. I'm just going to say a couple of things quickly to you about this idea of helping in cases of urgent need. Some translators, some commentators I should say, look at verse 14, and they think that the case of urgent need are the men... Zenus and Apollos, who are on a mission, who Titus is supposed to speed on their way. And that the help is directed towards this mission team. The mission team is coming, they're stopping in Crete. You're to help them and you're to speed them on their way. It's a case of urgent need. That's possible. But as I read the text, I agree with the commentators who say that what Paul's talking about in verse 14 isn't necessarily what we would call missions, But it's actually what we would call maybe benevolence. Helping people who have legitimate and urgent needs in their life. And so I want to just say to you, this is the part where I'm not going to preach the sermon. I'm just going to put some stuff on the screen. I'm going to move through it quickly. And I'm going to leave you to process what this ought to look like in a church. And if you have questions to talk with me or some of our leaders about what it does look like In our church, number one, let's just say this: the church has an obligation to help people in need. We have a responsibility when there's people in need to help those people. That's part of what it means to be a Christ follower. It's part of what it means to be a church put into order. Number two, that obligation includes not non-believers, but it begins with our people. And this is just a biblical principle from other passages. We should help anyone and everyone in need. But, because there is such a thing as our people, we are called in a special way to help those of the household of faith. Other places in the New Testament make this clear. Number three, the church is a worshiping, disciple-making organization, not a benevolence organization. This is really important. And it's a, a truth that when forgotten, churches can completely lose sight of their mission and their purpose. Yes, as a church, we are called to help people. We have an obligation. But that is not the primary reason that we exist as a church. First and foremost, we exist to be a worshiping community. Secondly, we exist to be a disciple-making community amongst those who are not currently worshiping. That's our primary call as the church. And if you get this backwards, you'll end up forgoing all worship. And you won't make any disciples, but you'll help a whole lot of people with earthly needs, and you'll leave their spiritual needs completely unmet. So you have to understand, we're first and foremost a worshiping, disciple-making organization. Two more truths for your consideration. The church has limited resources. I don't know if you knew this, but it's true. Church has limited resources. We don't have the government's ability to print money. What you put in the box is what we have. And your faith, church, and As your pastor, I'm thankful for that. But we have limited resources. That means, number five, the church has to use wisdom in determining how to care for those in need and in determining which needs are truly urgent. This is not always easy. But I can tell you as a church and as an elder here and as somebody who works with our finance team, we take this responsibility seriously. We budget money in our budget to help our people who are in need. Because we feel like we're in a position to evaluate the lives and the situations and the circumstances of our people and to know when there are cases of urgent need where we can help. We also budget money and we send it out of this building and we send it to other organizations who can better vet and better evaluate cases of urgent need. And because they help more people than we do on a regular basis. They have economies of scale and they can help even more people than we would be able to help with the same amount of money. So we take this seriously. The church is called to care for those in need and it's a complicated thing that every church has to work out how exactly they are going to do that. Number four, how do believers treat each other in a church Is put into order? They make each other feel welcome. I don't know if you were wanting a a deep, powerful theological insight for truth number four, but that's it. And it's actually really important that church members, when we gather together, make each other feel welcome. Verse 15, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Is that just a throwaway verse, or does that tell us something important about how we relate to each other? I think it's the latter. If Paul, hundreds of miles away in Nicopolis, thought it was important to greet the believers on the island of Crete, how much more important is it that we as believers greet each other, not in a a forced, phony, now's the time where you stand up and you shake hands with each other, But in a genuine way, we greet each other and we welcome each other and we make other people feel welcome here. It's actually part of our membership covenant. When you join this church, you sign the covenant that says, I will warmly welcome guests. I will make other people feel welcome here. When you walk into this building on a Sunday morning, I look around the room this morning, Some of you are carrying heavy things as you walked into this building. Understand that. Never underestimate the importance when you walk in this building and you walk down the hallway of smiling at somebody, speaking to somebody, introducing yourself to somebody that you don't know, shaking somebody's hand, giving them a fist bump, giving them a hug, Never underestimate the importance of that. If you think that's not important, I would suggest you go visit some other churches. And I don't mean go and never come back. We want you to come back here. But I just mean you should you should actually visit other churches where you don't know everybody and where you're not comfortable and you don't know where anything is. You should just go to another church, maybe this summer when you're on vacation. Say, I'm just gonna go to another church. I'm not going to watch the live stream, but I'm going to go to an actual church. I'm going to walk into a building where I don't know anybody and just evaluate how that goes and come away thinking, how important was it that people greeted me or that they didn't greet me? It's really important. It's the simplest thing you might do on a Sunday morning, but it's essential to how we relate to each other properly making each other feel welcome. I'll be honest with you, sometimes I think other cultures are maybe a little bit better at this than we are as Americans. And I know we're still kind of in the Bible belt, kind of on the edge of the Bible belt, but we're still in the Bible belt and Odessa, West Texas has friendly people. I know all of that, but sometimes I think other cultures are a little bit more intentional about this than we are. And I can think about church services that I've attended in Ecuador and Argentina where people hugged me and spoke to me. I had no idea what they were saying. They talked to me, and they said, Bienvenidos, about 800 times before I could find my chair. And there was no question that you were welcome there. If you've ever traveled with us to Kenya, there's a lot of talking that takes place before anything official happens. And a lot of that talking is welcoming talk. And the pastors and the church members, they say it over and over and over again. You're welcome here. You're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. You're welcome. You're at home here. Welcome. And at some point, as Americans, we think, can we get to the preaching already? You've welcomed me. I get it. But they just keep saying it. You're welcome. Be at home here. You're welcome. Be welcome. Because they're greeting you. We could probably do a little bit better. You don't have to go up and down the hall speaking Spanish. You don't have to say to everyone who walks in the door, you're home, welcome. But I think we could be intentional about that. Speaking to people, introducing ourselves to people, welcoming people so that they feel at home here. How do believers treat each other in a church that's put in order? Fifth, last, but certainly not least, they pray for each other. Verse 15b, grace be with you all. If you read the letters that Paul wrote to Titus or Timothy or you read the letters that Paul wrote to churches, he's always praying for his friends and his his churches. He just can't say much without having to stop and he inserts these prayers, I'm praying for you. And sometimes he just puts the whole prayer. This is what I'm praying for you. Over and over and over again, he's praying for these churches. He's praying for these pastors. One of my favorite books is a book by a man named D.A. Carson. It's called Praying with Paul. And in the book, D.A. Carson, who's a brilliant New Testament scholar, all he does is he looks at the prayers that Paul prays for his churches and his friends in the letters that he wrote in the New Testament. Not all of them, but most of them. And I like what Carson says, he says, my aim in writing this book, in these chapters, is to mingle a little bit of practical advice on praying with prolonged meditations on some of Paul's prayers. Just as God's Word must reform our theology, and it should, and our ethics, and it should, and our practices, and it should, so also must God's Word reform our praying." We want to learn what to pray for. Prayer is hard. And sometimes you find yourself saying, I don't know what to say to God at all. We should look at some of the things that Paul prayed for his friends in his churches. And then you should pray those things for our church. Your church. And if you look at Paul's books, his writings... One of the prayers you will find on repeat, you'll find him praying for all kinds of things, amazing things, but one of the prayers you will find on repeat is Paul praying that God's grace would be given to his friends and to the churches that he's praying for, God's grace. It's not a throwaway prayer at the end. It's not like a Hallmark card that you just sort of stamp on the end and you say, grace be with you. You know, it's not just a a salutation or an easy way to end a letter. It's a prayer. And Paul is praying for Titus. And by implication, not only Titus, but the churches on the island of Crete, that God's grace would be with them. Why would he pray that? It's because he wants them to be a church put into order. And he knows that's not just going to happen on its own. I hope that you pray for your church. Look around the room. Most of you are our people. Some of you are not our people. This is not your church. I hope you pray for your church. If this is your church, I hope you pray for this church. And I hope you pray that God's grace would be with us. God, would your grace be with us because we want to be a church put into order. In your grace, would you give us right leadership? In your grace, would you give us right doctrine? In your grace, would you help us to live lives that are lived rightly and marked by good works. God, would your grace, the same grace that appeared in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the same grace that caused us to be born again to a living hope, the same grace by which the Father justified us, God, would your grace be present in this church to save people? We can't save them. I can't save them. I can't teach them enough and educate them enough, enough, neither can your Sunday school teachers, to save anybody. But through the preaching and the teaching of the Word of God, God's grace saved people. God, would you save people in this church? And God, would you change people in this church? Don't just save us, but save us and change us that our lives would be marked by good works. Father, we stop this morning as a church and we thank you for the book of Titus. We thank you that you've not left us to be inventive or creative when it comes to the church. You've told us exactly what you want from us. God, we pray one last Sunday that you would make us a church put into order. Give us right leadership, right doctrine, right living, Father, we pray that our relationships amongst each other in this church family would be shaped by your word. Make us people who pray that your grace would be real and present in our lives. Father, we pray this morning that you would save people here at Emmanuel, that you would change people here at Emmanuel, and that you would gift people to serve in unique and needed ways here in this church. Father, we thank you that you've called us out of the world into your family, into your kingdom. God, make us a welcoming, praying group. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.